Good morning. My name is Thad Lantherip. I'm the executive pastor here, and I'm glad that you could join us as we kick off our Bible Stories message series, where we are going to look at some of the most well-known stories from the Bible. These stories are in church kids' curriculum all the time, stories like Joshua and Jericho and the Wall and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace, Samson and his strength as well as many other stories that we're going to look at. But these stories aren't meant just to be for kids. They're not fairy tales at all. These are stories of real historical events that reveal truth about God, his ways, his character, and there is a lot that we can learn from them. So I am looking forward to looking at them together and figuring out uh, what we can really learn from these stories and apply to our lives Today, my kids love to hear stories about my wife, Gina, and me. The other day, we were talking about the time that I proposed to Gina. And after we talked about that, my daughter said, Dad, do you have any more stories? She wanted to hear more and more stories. She wanted to hear stories. She wanted to get to know her parents in a different way. Well, the same thing is true about God's children. The stories that we are going to look at, they fill us with awe and wonder about God and how he has created the world and how things work. And so it it can lead us to want to hear more and more and more stories about God and how, how he's created the world to work and do things. And so I'm looking forward to really diving into these stories together. Now, an important framework for this series is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, because the entirety of Scripture equips God's children for good works. This verse says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has chosen these stories to be in his perfect word, the Bible. These stories can help us by teaching us, correcting, training us in in righteousness, rebuking us. And it's interesting what, what you see in this verse here. What you see is this positive thing, and then a negative, and then another negative, and then a positive. What you see is teaching It's positive about us learning knowledge about the Bible. And then you see the rebuking. The rebuking is negative about when we have thoughts that aren't right. They, they don't, they aren't true. So the Bible can rebuke us from those negative thoughts. It can teach us the right knowledge that we need to have. Then the Bible can correct us. It can correct us from going the wrong way. This has to deal with how we are walking and and going how we are living our life. And then the positive is it can train us in righteousness. That is, again, how we live life. We can take what the Bible says and put it into practice in our life and know that we are living the right way. So this is kind of the framework that we can see. The Bible is going to teach us. It's going to rebuke us. It's going to show us ways that our thinking, our knowledge is off. It's going to correct us in ways that maybe we're not living in line with God's ways. And it's going to train us for righteousness. It's going to show us the right way 
to live. So let's dive into our first story in this series, which is about Noah and the flood. Noah and the flood reveals a lot about human nature and God's character. The first part of the story starts out showing that as that, uh, that at this time, wickedness was in the hearts of man. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This highlights the fact that Every human has decided to go their own way, apart from God, and, and try to, to be their own boss in their life. Adam and Eve chose to eat fruit from the one tree that God said not uh, to eat from. And Romans 3.23 says we've all put our stamp of approval on that decision because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we all have this desire inside of us to be our own boss, to do life away, apart from, from God's way. And this part of, of Noah and the flood story is showing us that uh, that was going on in their time. But it was going on in such a way that evil intention of the thoughts of their hearts was was the only thing that they were thinking about. It was just constant. How can I do evil? How can I do evil? How can I do evil? So it's a little different than than uh, most of us. Um, but what it is saying is, this was a very dark time in what people were doing. These people were just constantly doing evil. That is everyone except... For Noah. Noah was living God's way in the middle of all this wickedness. Genesis 6, 9 says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So we see that Noah stood out in his generation as someone that was different from the rest. He was walking with God. He was trying to live his ways. He was righteous. So with with this going on, all the wickedness going on, and Noah standing out as being righteous, blameless, and walking with God, God decides to use a flood to deal with the people's wickedness at the time. Genesis six, thirteen, all the way through chapter seven, four, is where we're going to see the bulk of this of what we're looking at this morning. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, let's let's stop and, and look at this for a moment. A natural question that comes from reading a verse like this, where God is saying, I'm going to he, he's decided to wipe everybody off of the face of the earth and the animals as well. A natural question is, how does a loving God do something like this? The Bible talks about God is love. It also talks about that God is holy. This means that he cannot do anything wrong. He's blameless. He can only do what is right. That's part of his nature. He's also merciful. He's patient. He's just. He is going to enact justice. That's part of who he is. He's also the creator. And the creator of something has the right to do with the creation as, as he sees fit, 
as he sees it's the right thing to do. Now, this is hard to understand when we're, we're looking at a story like this, where humans are involved and God's the creator. None of us are creators of humans. That is only God. But we still can understand this idea of, of the rights of the creator having over its creation. If, if you go to a preschool class at Church in the Valley, those preschoolers, they understand that. I was in preschool class through about three weeks ago, and if they, if somebody builds a block tower, that is their block tower. They created it. If another kid comes and knocks it over, oh, there's going to be trouble because they violated their creation. Now, if they knock it over, that's fine because they created it. But there's going to be conflict if somebody else knocks over their creation. In our country, we have copyright laws because we understand that if you create something, then you should be the one to profit from the thing that you have created. And so what we're looking at here is God is the creator. He's the one who gets to decide ultimately what happens to his creation. And his decision is in line with his character of being just and Patient. Let's take a look at what's going on here, the rest of the verses. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its inside. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. There's a couple of terms here that are, are unusual to us. Pitch is what was used to make things waterproof. So that's what it's talking about when it says put pitch on the inside and the outside. Um, another thing that is uncommon for us is this idea of a cubit as a measuring, uh, as a, a unit of measurement. We don't use cubits anymore, but what a cubit was at this time was about the length of a man's elbow to fingertips. That was a cubit. And it's about 18 inches to, to 20 inches is, is, is what you get. And so the arc was 300 cubits long. Let's say it was 18 inches for a cubit. That'd be 450 feet long. Or it would be the size of a football field and a half. That's amazing. This is a massive ship that is being made. It's not like the, the pictures on the books that we see where all the animals are crowded in this little boat. This is a massive, massive ark that Noah is being told to build by God. Around 450 shipping containers can fit inside of this ark. Now, this was being built at a time where there wasn't any power tools. Not at all. It was a very, uh, no electricity, no power tools. And, you know, we're, we're in the park for three months while 8,000 square feet of our building is being renovated with all the power tools and, and the things 
that that could be done. So you can get a sense that it took a long time for this ark to be built. The Bible doesn't give an exact timeline, but it must have taken a very long time. Some suggest that it's take Noah about 55 to 75 years to complete this ark. God determined that it was just to destroy the wickedness in the earth. But the thing is, he didn't do that quickly. It took Noah a long time to build this ark. And this gave people the opportunity to repent. As Noah is building this thing, people are going to ask him, what are you doing? And he's going to tell them, God is going to send a flood. You need to repent. Turn back to God before this flood comes to destroy the earth. He gave people time. He was patient in enacting the justice that needed to be done. Look what God says next. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring the birds according to their kinds. And of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the, that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Another question that comes up as we look at this story and the ark is how do you fit all these animals in this ark? How do you do it? Well, there's some things to to look at, and you you can start to see how this all fits, how it all works. First of all, the the ark is massive. Football field and a half, 75, at least 75 feet wide. It is a massive, massive ship. And then you don't need to put the sea animals into the ship. They're going to be fine in the flood. They're going to be able to swim wherever they need to swim. Next, we can see that it says two of every kind of animal, not two of every breed or every, every, every specific animal. It's not saying to do that. Um, an example of a kind of animal could be like dogs. Dogs are a kind of animal. So you take two dogs onto Noah's Ark rather than two beagles and two poodles and two German, German shepherds. It would just be two dogs. And we can see that, that we can still have this variety in our world today in the fact that It's only taken 500 years to get all of the different breeds of dogs that we have in our world today. 
So this happened thousands of years ago. We don't know the exact time, but we could, by taking two of every kind of animal, we can see how those animals are going to be able to produce the variety that we see today over over time. Now, Answers in Genesis is an organization that has created an actual size ark in Kentucky. I hope to visit this place someday, but they've done a lot of research on the on, on Genesis. You can know that in the name. And by their estimate, they, they think around 6,700 uh, animals were on the ark. You can find an article that goes through their reasoning. It, it, it makes a lot of sense what they say. We don't know the exact number, but that's about how many animals they think were on the ark. And if the number is anywhere close to there, which it, 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 it is, um, then you can see that those animals fit on the ark. They can make it on there. So let's get back to the story as we're looking at here. It rained 40 days and 40 nights. Then the flood ended. Genesis 8, 3 and 4 says, And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And God's bow is the sign of his covenant to never flood the earth again. Genesis 9, 11 through 13 says, I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The word for bow for bow is the word used for bow and arrow. So the rainbow, it arches like a bow. That is God's bow. That is a symbol of his covenant to never wipe out the people of the earth again. There's a lot of lessons that we can learn from Noah and in the flood. There's a lot of different ways that we can dive into the story and learn truth about who God is, his ways, and, and what is going on. The part I want to focus on for the rest of the message is that God keeps his promises. The flood was thousands of years ago, and God has kept that promise to never flood the earth again. He left us with his bow as a reminder of that promise that he's never going to wipe out the face, all, all living things from the face of the earth with, with a flood. There's countless promises of God in the Bible. But one of the ones that I want to focus on right now is God promises peace to those who commit their life to follow Christ. We are all in the middle of uncertainty in our lives. Inflation is brutal right now. Maybe you're experiencing a financial crunch or maybe there's health uncertainties or job uncertainties or whatever it might be. 
I'm a natural worrier. It's just something that I have to battle against. It's easy for me to just get into worry, which spirals down into anxiousness. Um, and Philippians 4, 4 through 9 has been a huge help to me when it comes to worrying about things. Take a look at the instruction that we get, how God uses this verse to, to teach us about the knowledge that we need and, and the way that we need to live. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We, we tend to look at peace as a product of our circumstances, but it's actually something that God promises to give us as we turn to him. I'm, like I said, I'm a natural worrier, and I have to really be careful to not let those worrying thoughts spiral down into anxiety. When my first uh, child was born, we went in for our last sonogram to check um, him before he was born, and the technician got silent. And that's never a good, a good feeling in the sonogram room. And the technician went and got the doctor. The doctor came in and explained that our son's heart was measuring several weeks too small, and that it was it was working too hard and that they needed to get him out. They needed to induce my wife and, and, and get him out so they could see how they could how they could help him. So five days later he was born. There was no sign of any problem with with his heart. It was amazing. God healed him and did a miraculous thing. However, I could not shake the fear and the worry that there was really something wrong with them that they just hadn't checked out yet or they didn't, they didn't see yet. And this verse helped me to get out of the spirals that kept happening over and over again where I'd worry and it'd pull me away from the things that I really needed to be working on and getting done. So what I had to do was I had to use that worry as a indicator that, so I, that something's going on. I need to turn and ask God for help. Like it says... By, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So when the worry would come up, I'd start to worry about Blake and is he okay? Is he going to be okay? I'd turn to God and say, God, please protect my son. Help him to be okay. Help me to focus on the responsibility I have in front of me. And as I just prayed that prayer, I'd get back to work. And then five minutes later or 10 minutes later or 30 minutes later, whatever it was, it was frequent at the beginning, I'd pray that prayer again. Ask God for help and get back to work. As I did that over and over and over again, God gave me a peace about Blake's health, that he was in control of it. I can trust him with that. And I was able to focus on the responsibilities that I had in front of me and get that done. Practicing that 
over and over and over again has been a huge help in my life as we've dealt with children who have had serious illnesses, as my, we've dealt with my wife having serious illness. I've just had to practice this over and over again as worry pops up. It's an indicator to turn to God, ask for his help, ask him to help me to focus on what is true in the situation that I'm facing right now. And then I get back to the responsibility in front of me. God will give us a peace as we turn to him. He's always faithful to his promises. Just like we can see with the, his bow after it rains right now. God was, has been faithful to that promise for thousands of years. And he's faithful to what he promises in his word. We need to lean into those promises and trust in him. Each week we have next steps that you can take in response to the message and um, this is to help us to be doers of God's word. We won't, don't want to just hear the word, forget about it, and not do it. We want to do God's word so that we can be trained in righteousness and prepared for every good work that God has prepared us to do. So here's some next steps that you might want to take in response to the message today. The first next step is to remember the Lord is at hand and ask him to help with my worries. That's what I was just talking about. Worry comes up about something. Turn to God. Ask him for help. help. Ask him to help you to focus on what's in front of you right now. And then, and then do it. Another thing that you might want to do is to focus your mind on Philippians 4.8 this week. We, haven't talk, we didn't talk about that part of the verse very much. But it says to focus. To, it says to finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We need to focus our thoughts on what is true, not what is untrue. When we start thinking about things that are untrue, that's how we spiral into anxiety or into other, other things that, that damage us. We need to think about what is true. And the God of peace will be with us. The last next step you might want to take in response to the message is to memorize Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God is faithful. He is 100% true to his promises. We can take those to the bank. This verse, memorizing it, will help us to remember, to turn to him, ask for his help, and be in his peace, regardless of the situations that we're facing. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the story of Noah and the flood and just what we can learn about you what we can learn about your ways and just the, that you are faithful, Lord. And I just thank you that you love us, that you're merciful, you're patient with us. Help us to really lean into your promises, Lord, that you are faithful. Help us to lean into the promise that you'll give us peace. I pray that you give us peace. Regardless of our the situations we're facing this week, help us 
to lean into you, to trust in you, and experience the peace that you promised to give us. In Jesus' name, amen.